Welcome to episode 27 of Rethinking with Alex Torpy. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about why and how we vet ideas and how we engage with feedback of those around us. Now, we're constantly surrounded by ideas to a fairly ridiculous degree, and there's a big difference to how people in influential positions vet, share, and react to feedback about their own and other ideas. Let's say you believe you're changing something that needs to be changed or expressing a new or different idea and people are telling you to stop or that you're wrong. There are times when seemingly widespread criticism means you really should stop or at least reconsider. But there are also times when it shouldn't. And the trickiest part is that sometimes those are the moments when it's most important to continue pushing forward. But how can we know which is which? So stick around and we'll talk about it. And if you end up enjoying this episode, don't forget to share, like, or subscribe. Enjoy. For anyone who may believe in doing things differently or making change, I think this is one of the most important concepts to really deeply think about, especially important for those of you in leadership or other influential positions where your own beliefs, ideas, or actions may be life and death for others or where you have a major impact on large groups of people. In part, this topic has been something I've thought about for a while, having been in a handful of positions where my own beliefs and actions impact many people at a time. And then most recently, I was listening to an interview with Ye, formerly Kanye West, that uh, recently appeared on the Lex Friedman podcast. And um, listening to that prompted some reactions on the topic that I wanted to share. Although it would be helpful to add a little flavor if you've listened to that interview, which is linked in the show notes, and it's interesting on a few different levels. Listening to it uh, is not necessary, and this will be an interesting and relevant conversation either way. But let's just start with a moment on this interview. Now, I think anyone who knows me knows I don't really pay much attention to, you know, sort of what celebrities are doing or the kind of general pop culture you know, type things. Not a great pick for your next trivia team. Uh, So I don't really know that much about Kanye West's last few years of his activity before becoming Ye or since then. So I'm sure I'm missing a little bit of context. Now, I was a big fan of some of his music uh, early on. It was kind of hard not to be. Um, But in fact, actually, a former Columbia High School student and fellow drummer, though it's not really fair to put us in the same category like that, actually um, uh, produced the song Flashing Lights, um, which was on one of Kanye's earlier albums graduation. But since then, I haven't really followed uh, his politics or do I really know what he actually said on Twitter that kicked off this most recent controversy. Um, However, Lex Friedman, who I think has got one of the more interesting long-form discussion podcasts out there, interviewed him and I couldn't help but check it out after it was recommended. Um, It was fascinating in a number of ways, especially about our psychology as humans and especially for those in sort of celebrity or powerful, influential type positions. But the piece I wanted to reflect on here is this. What it felt like listening to Ye, to be perfectly honest, is that there were sometimes nuggets of insight or creativity in some of his ideas and a clear desire to think outside the box, but most of the ideas themselves were not very well thought out. They felt like the ideas, you know, sort of a young kid might have or, you know, maybe not an entirely sober person at 3 a.m., There was something there, yes, but the idea never really made it. Something happened before it reached the point of really being a fully thought out idea or it went in some nonsensical direction that would really only make sense if you hadn't really 
thought that hard about it or really had to defend it. And my sense, and this is something I've talked about a lot before as a problem in many environments with leaders or powerful or influential people, is ecosystems where people don't have access to constructive or critical feedback. And the primary way this plays out is these sort of false positive feedback loops where people in charge don't actually allow their ideas to be challenged by others, either explicitly or implicitly. And my guess is that this is probably the case in his life uh, for Ye, that for a handful of different reasons that we often see with wealthy or powerful or influential people, I would think most of the people he's around most of the time probably uh, generally or blindly support or encourage rather than push back or debate or argue or critique. Because of that lack of rigor, it feels like we're left with bits of an idea and ideas that are inconsistent with each other or that violate some obvious norms or known facts. And I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest there's actually a lot of this out there around us these days, a lot of bad ideas, which does not necessarily mean bad people. And I think that's important to be clear about. But the ideas just aren't good. Even if they touch on some kernel of truth or insight or they began there, these sort of poorly thought out ideas that haven't really been vetted in a rigorous way, they often contribute or actually create a lot of the problems that we see around us. And again, I think this is a really important topic, especially for those of you out there in positions of leadership or influence or power. And in fact, I'd say that because most of us now have our own MIDI media platforms that allow us to communicate to large groups at a click of a button, this thought experiment is probably relevant for everyone. Because ultimately, this concept is about how we vet our ideas, opinions, or beliefs. And ultimately, that process is extremely important to intentionally understand and deliberately improve what we know and what we do in the world. Improvements in how we explore and vet ideas individually, as communities, and as a society is likely one of the most impactful things that we can do to improve the world around us. It has no political bias, but rather is something that everyone can do so as to help one's opinions and actions be more aligned with one's values. And because part of the crazy thing is that even when we actually find consensus on an idea out there, which seems to be becoming more and more of a challenge, the programs or policies that we create to actually take action on those ideas often just don't work very well or at all. Sometimes they end up making matters worse or have serious unintended consequences or they cost much more than we expect, especially over the long term. So this is a sort of meta issue, as all issues out there are in an environment where people had ideas, formed beliefs, and took actions on those. And the worse we are at that process, it's no surprise the worse our solutions and outcomes will be. Now, anyone who has tried to change something is probably familiar with the sort of feeling that I'm trying to describe here. This feeling of pushing against the grain, shouting into the wind, climbing a steep hill, whatever. This is a scenario where something you are expressing or doing appears to be getting significant and widespread pushback, perhaps implicitly and or explicitly, from whatever environment you're in. This can come in many different forms, but it could include things like being socially ostracized in a workplace or school setting for suggesting a new policy or doing work in a way that others perceive as violating some norm. 
being harassed on social media, or maybe being canceled for expressing an idea. Or perhaps you want to make or advocate for some change by holding a person accountable who did something wrong, creating a new policy that could prevent something wrong from happening, exposing some truth that might be negative to some stakeholders but benefit many more, or something like that. And then perhaps you are threatened with legal action or fired or threatened to be fired, or you lose political support from individuals or entities or parties, or you're physically threatened or attacked for an idea or a position. All of these kinds of things I'm sort of putting under this broad category that I've been calling people telling you to stop doing something that you're doing. Now, this might look like people directly saying that, like, hey, Alex, stop doing that, or hey, Alex, you're wrong about that. But also, it could include any number of other forces that are put together with the goal to stop you from doing whatever it is you're doing, changing whatever you're changing, or expressing whatever it is you're expressing. And that pushback can come in many forms, especially today where such large groups of people have access to things that sort of used to be siloed or just not on anyone's radar. It's easy these days, not just for political leaders to exact punishment on people for expressing different opinions than the ones that they want to hear, as I'm so familiar with uh, in my work, but the environment with social media also makes it really easy, maybe some could argue too easy, for many people to quickly mount advocacy campaigns against a person or issue, often seeming to trade accuracy for speed. And understanding this environment is important because it's the environment that we all make decisions in, including leaders in various sectors. And of course, let's think about this from a local government perspective. So I'll do that by telling a story. When I came into office in South Orange in 2011, at the ripe old age of 23, it was kind of crazy. Now, for many reasons. And one of them was the kind of insane online message board in the town that I've talked about before, but which really was Maplewood and South Orange's main social point for kind of local political discussion. The site itself had various different categories of message boards and pages like classifieds and sort of a pre-next-door kind of discussion about finding contractors, selling furniture, finding pets, and the like. But it also had a local issues or a local politics side that was a relative cesspool, really, in its most basic and honest terms. Although many people looked at it the way many people look at movies that depict violence, uh, horror, tragedy, and chaos, a very small percent of people actually participated. And those people, some of them would use multiple accounts to support their own arguments, including one of our former elected officials. And many accounts participated anonymously. Rules about civility were enforced strictly for people who had differing views of the message board owners, who themselves were politically active, and rules were largely ignored for friends and political allies. I think it's a fair statement to say that this message board dominated the local politics scene. And getting caught up in this, I also paid extreme attention to it during my campaign, as well as in the preceding first months in office. It seemed like our success as a government would literally live and die based on what these particular uh, group of people on the internet thought about what was happening. It was discussed in governing body meetings as a source of reliable feedback to understand public perception on issues that we were dealing with. And one or two elected officials would routinely post and engage on it, 
sometimes in violation of public meeting and other laws, but ultimately in a way that lent it enormous credibility and really made it the institutionalized focus, even though we also had a number of local paper and online news sources and a fairly active at this point uh, set of kind of volunteers that were engaged in town. But after a few months or so, I started noticing something. I would see the kinds of things that were talked about in this space, and then I would see the rest of my life, which included when not being in town hall, sitting down in our local Starbucks almost every day, doing my company's work or schoolwork, where I would chat with people seemingly every 15 minutes who stopped by to talk about something, or from talking to various colleagues or patients through the rescue squad, or from having grown up in the community and knowing a ton of people, or when I was in office, calling random people out of a phone book on weekends and just asking them what they were thinking about and what they were hearing. I started to see a distinct pattern. The issues that people complained about and which were controversial on this website were almost entirely not correlated to what everyone else in the community seemed to be talking about. Although there was definitely overlap sometimes, the more frequent scenario was that there was not. And there were a number of occasions where some of the elected officials braced for backlash about something that seemed to be boiling over on this website, and then not one single person would write to any of us or come to a well-publicized meeting about it or would have mentioned in any of the conversations that I had been having with people. And I started realizing something that now, more than a decade later of studying and working in this field, I understand much more thoroughly which was that the samples of people who participate in almost any feedback environment, but especially ones like that, are incredibly biased, small, non-representative samples, with literally over 99% of the impacted community never participating in that feedback environment at all. The numbers are that small. And that 1% of people participating is, is probably very generous. As for a town South Orange's size, that amounts to something like 150 to 200 people. More realistically, it was probably an order of magnitude smaller, with not 1%, but 0.1% of people actively participating in that message board, somewhere around 15 or 20 people or so. That leaves 99.9% .9 of people not taken into account. You know, the number of people driving the conversation in many of these environments are closer to the number of bacteria that survive a dose of chlorine bleach. Not great. Now, this was an interesting, a fascinating realization, and it was the impetus for trying to find ways to solicit broader feedback from new groups of people that had not before participated as much. I mean, at least if we're going to get yelled at about things, the yelling should be based on a representative sample of who lives in the community. So at least we have a more accurate idea of how people actually feel about any of the issues that are being considered. But a slight side note is that probably the only reason I was able to really realize this and actually push past it and help create a more representative feedback environment that enabled us to make a bunch of really good, complex, long-term decisions about things in the forthcoming years was because I never had an inkling of interest in running for a second term. Four years of an unpaid position at the head of a government at 23 years old was already a very daunting commitment. 
So I felt comfortable pushing back on certain negative feedback when I felt confident or had an intuition that it was not representative. And then we'd come out the other end a couple weeks or a few months later, and all parties or the vast majority of parties, stakeholders would realize that we had indeed made a good decision. Whether it was what turned out to be an ultra tiny group of people who were very loud and persistent, who tried to stop our eventual successful seven-year-long lawsuit against a corrupt water utility that had contaminated our drinking water, or that kind of same type of group that wanted us to sell our performing arts center, which now for years has been a regional and statewide success. It was clear vaguely at the time and clear in retrospect that in those cases, not listening to the no's after considering them was the right thing to do. But there were plenty of other times that it wasn't. But how can we possibly tell when that's right and when that is wrong to do? And again, this matters a great deal more than we give it credit, because this dynamic plays a major, if not the most major, role in determining how decisions get made about things around us. Do the people who are making the decisions have good reason to have faith in the belief that they are right? And are they listening to pushback that they are getting or aren't they? And think for a moment about milestone events in history. Even think about the creation of this country. Here was a situation where individuals fought a pretty sizable war to remove themselves from being governed by a particular sovereignty because of disagreement over values and goals. When an entire royalty sends armies and navies your way after you express frustration about tax policy, you can consider that a fairly aggressive form of this concept that we're talking about where people are telling you to stop. Right, in a scenario that probably most of us are glad was ignored, the reaction of our you know, revolutionary forefathers wasn't, hey, listen, uh, the king and all those folks are really upset, and so we're probably wrong and we should stop. Rather, it, perhaps they were emboldened by the opposition they faced and saw their fight not only as just, but as divinely guided and supported. We can navigate our imaginations to the plight of scientists throughout history being silenced, who decades later turned out to be right, or civil rights leaders pushing back on decades or centuries of inequality, or whistleblowers trying to bring truth to something that is going wrong in government, all of whom who face significant vocal, physical, or political opposition to their ideas. With our glasses of history, we can look back and see clearly in these cases where these people were right and good for them for ignoring the people who were trying to push back or silence them. But we can also navigate our minds to some of the worst atrocities in history and clearly see examples where leaders who thought they were doing the right thing, in many cases who should have listened to people that were telling them to stop. Consider at the most extreme end of this the civil wars and genocides perpetrated against so many different peoples throughout the planet, and the anger and tragedy we can feel of looking back on those leaders ignoring the calls for them to stop. Having worked in and around government for a long time, this is a very real and practical ongoing daily concern that comes up in a regular basis in communities and environments 
often on much more of a routine or small scale than the examples I just gave, but on very important things that determine a lot about the way our world is put together now and into the future. But this is rarely discussed. The dynamic of NIMBYism, for example, which stands for not in my backyard, is one of the most widespread and problematic dynamics in local decision making, where basically people in a community implement a different set of local values than their stated global values that, for example, have perpetuated exclusionary zoning and housing policies that have a very detrimental impact on many of our communities. And the way that we tend to solve this relatively complex problem of how to understand when an idea is good and worth moving forward on or not is itself problematic. Instead of creating a really thoughtful and intentional and complex framework for approaching those things, we do what we humans often do. We reduce it down to something simple and binary and easy to implement, basically a heuristic. And because we're social animals, we do something more, which is that we create rules or frameworks for what to believe or do, often based on listening to one source of ideas or another, often tied to some sort of group of people, often based on some aspect of our cultural subgroup or identity. And whether you get news from TV or radio or print or online or TikTok or what person or source you specifically follow or read or listen to or even what types of issues you pay attention to and all of that related stuff about consuming information and forming and sharing ideas. You know, most of us, this includes you and it includes me, most of the time we don't really do the research and evaluation of things ourselves though sometimes we might convince ourselves we do and sometimes we might actually do it but more frequently we tend to find a source or group or party or some other thing some condition about where this information is coming from that we can hang our hat on that justifies any downstream belief and then we tend to just listen to those things. It frees up a lot of mental and emotional space to do other things, but it comes with big downsides. For many years, I've navigated this sort of space in a semi-conscious and semi-subconscious way. But over the last few years, as I've studied this more and through my work, I've been trying to put a more fine point on it. In last year, I was really at the peak of thinking through this topic as I traveled across the country for four months, spending many days in a row without technology and spending some really great time with close friends talking about some of these things. And what follows is a rough idea of where my head is at. And what I wanted to do was try to develop a framework that leaders or really anyone could use that would basically just include a set of simple questions that you could routinely ask yourself if you're pushing on something and people are trying to shout you down or intimidate you or silence you, if you've ever been in that kind of position, you know how tough this can feel and you know how much self-doubt this can create. And if you're a self-reflective person or just not a total arrogant narcissist, that widespread pushback has probably made you really seriously doubt yourself, even if briefly. But these questions uh, to ask are important because... On one hand, they can be part of a regular feedback cycle that can help keep you generally honest with yourself. But on the other hand, 
<clears throat> they can provide you some cover and confidence on how to navigate challenging environments where it's unclear if you should heed the forces you're pushing back against or not. So I've thought a lot about this, and although I don't have any sort of finished, polished thing, I do have a, a working framework, which I'd like to share with you all, and I'd be really curious what folks think. So email me back or reach out with any thoughts. So there are two steps or parts to this. And again, not an exact science, but just a rough way to start to think about this. First, there's a set of, I've got four questions that you can ask yourself. And then I'll follow that with five ideas or concepts that might help in thinking about authentic, critical, constructive, and creative feedback loops. These questions could be part of an ongoing review of your goals or values or projects, maybe quarterly or annually, something that I think can be very valuable to do and which we'll come back to. If you can answer them honestly, which is easier said than done, they can give you an early warning sign that something might be missing and a reevaluation of some of your premises might be needed. And passing these questions can give you insight if the backlash you might be facing is not the whole story and perhaps you need to keep pushing onward. So question number one, is there one group of people that are impacted primarily or exclusively by the thing that you're changing or saying? If the answer is yes, red flag raised. This should be self-explanatory. And it's important because it's the first on my list because of the following fact. Think about some of the worst people in history, the most genocidal and tyrannical types. Let's remember that these people not only thought that they were God's gift to man, in some cases literally, but that in many of these scenarios, the violence or oppression that resulted from their actions was directed at one or specific groups of people. The overwhelming violence in our history doesn't seem very random. It seems much more directed at outgroups or others by someone who leverages some of our primate chimpanzee genes for in-group bonding to direct all of our anger or violence or fear at one other group that can be easily identified as the enemy and then which can then be defeated. So this is the first question. If the thing you're saying or doing only or primarily impacts one group, good or bad, because remember, these people thought that the things they were doing were amazing, but objectively, even if you think think the idea is good or bad, many of these acts of violence or oppression did clearly have an impact on one group. So without judging the impact yet as good or bad, one can ask the more neutral question, is one group mainly impacted? If so, it might be time to pause, step back, and reevaluate what you're doing. It doesn't mean that something is wrong, but it does mean that it's time to recheck your feedback loops and we'll come back to some strategies for how to do that in a bit. Question number two, is everyone telling you that you're right? If so, this is a major red flag. False positive feedback loops are devastating to the quality of ideas and incredibly common. I'll let the wealthy nuclear power plant owner and overall semi-evil business mogul, Mr. Burns, and his team of attorneys from The Simpsons demonstrate it. I've called you all here because I need some honest answers. What is my current financial situation? Great. Great. I hear great. All right. Well, let's have a look at my stock portfolio. <sighs> hmm. Confederated slave holdings. How's that doing? It's, uh, uh, steady. I'm sure all your stocks are doing well, sir. After all, you chose them. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's get out the old stock ticker and have a look. Eh. Uh, 
Here's where I stopped checking it last time. September 1929. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Smithers, why didn't you tell me about this market crash? Um, well, sir, it happened 25 years before I was born. Oh, that's your excuse for everything. I've got to do something to get my money back quickly. This calls for an aggressive trading strategy. Good idea, sir. Take 50% of my money and put it in the blue chips. Transatlantic Zeppelin, amalgamated spats, Congreves and flammable powders, U.S. hay, and sink the rest into that up-and-coming Baltimore Opera Hat Company. That should set things right again, eh, boys? Absolutely. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, hey, all the way. Can't go wrong with Congreves. <clears throat> Are you saying my money's all gone? Mm-hmm. But... I made all the right moves, didn't I? Yes, I oh, yes, sir. Every move a right one. I see it all now. You're just a bunch of yes-men. I was making the wrong moves, and you were too gutless to tell me. Isn't that right? Yes. Oh, yes, yes sir. Bad answer. I'm sure most of us have had a boss like that at one time or another. This is very common, and our leadership environments, especially in politics and government, incentivize this sort of yes-men culture, where people often advance their own interests and careers by picking someone higher on the chain than themselves and just sticking by that person's side no matter what. This sort of loyalty used for one's own political or economic or social advancement is behavior that we observe in primate social hierarchies as well. And it tends to contribute to these environments where political systems don't incentivize those under the leaders to argue with them, but rather to attach themselves to those leaders um, in direct opposition to teams or groups of others doing basically the same thing under other leaders. As the scarcity increases, so do the strength of these in-group bonds, and so does it tend to shrink the size of the circle that we consider in our group. I've talked about this more in previous episodes, but I think the general takeaway here is that because of the particular way that we designate leaders and transfer leadership, we've built an environment that doesn't favor honesty but favors loyalty, those being relatively different values in this regard. And we won't go into the full detail of it here, but helpful context, I think, is that I would say the most compelling scientific theories about evolution and natural selection are ones that favor an explanation of what we see in the world around us, like literally what we perceive through our senses in the physical world, not as trying to be as real or as detailed as possible, but rather trying to be as narrowly tailored to our specific needs. Basically, that what we see of the physical world doesn't try to represent the truth of what actually is there, but rather what we see allows us to maximize our movement and interaction in that world, such as to maximally replicate our genetic material down to subsequent generations. As Donald Hoffman illustrates to this point, when you use a computer, you aren't interacting with the so-called truth of that system, which is more like alternating electric charges that are passing energy through circuits or something like that. You're given a window into that system that is very, very, very stripped down and built exactly for you to be able to interact with that system in a way that makes the most sense for you. Engaging in the full detail of some computer electronic system or like seeing the surface of a table for what it really is as a majority of empty space, that doesn't really help us use the table for the purposes that we need it, nor would seeing the electrical circuitry that 
processes and contains our email messages. So instead, we get the operating system, and that is what we are surrounded by in the world around us. It's not that it's some made-up world, but rather it's just a very small slice of what's really there, and that slice is finely tailored to allow us to go about our biological survival most effectively as possible. Knowing that this is likely how the physical world is put together, this has only increased my own commitment to not being in environments where you are in a leadership position, make complex decisions that have impacts on many people's lives, the kinds of decisions that should require debate applied to them so that they can be improved and actually work as intended. And yet in those environments where there's really no way to debate or vet these issues, because let's say you manage by fear or create an environment where direct reports don't feel comfortable being honest with you. Many people unintentionally create these environments. And let's be real, no matter how good an idea is, there are always going to be some risks, concerns, caveats, side effects, downsides, costs, or whatever. And if no one is bringing those things up and pushing those sorts of things and forcing you to address them, well, this probably doesn't mean that your idea is the first one ever not to exhibit anything but positive conditions. More likely, it means that your feedback environment is biased towards false positives and you aren't getting really honest advice about what's going on. So that's a time when you may want to pause and step back and reevaluate. Question number three, does the idea or action solve everything? If you believe it has that sweeping level of an impact, I think that's another time for a red flag. Again, this doesn't mean that we can't propose big solutions or meta-solutions. In fact, we probably need more of those, not fewer. But the belief that your idea and your actions will have that broad level of an impact is worth at least being a flag to trigger more critical thought, if you haven't already. Again, think about some of the worst things that have ever happened. And again, how universal the people pushing those agendas suggested their solutions would bring, would be. And if we bring it down to a more day-to-day -day level and listen to how many politicians speak, we can see this. More and more, they talk about how they are the only ones who can address the thing, the only ones who know the truth, the only ones who aren't corrupted. They are making themselves the only solution, and the solution is total. It isn't that they are arguing they can make a little progress and we can work with other folks and everybody's got a little to add, but rather their narrative is that they are the only thing standing in the way of ruin and they are the only ones who can save us. That type of broad-based dogmatism can be very dangerous and it's rarely accurate doesn't mean that it's not possible, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't dream big. But if the idea seems too good to be true, if it seems like a magic bullet, it might be worth stepping back and making sure you're considering all of the conditions and dynamics that might be at play. Question number four. Have you never had a down day or haven't had one in a while? A day where you just feel terrible about the thing that you're doing, totally unmotivated or totally critical, just down on the idea. You hate it and you don't know why you liked it to begin with. I'm going to suggest here that I think those kinds of days are actually important for a few different reasons, but specifically in relation to how we move ideas through a vetting process. 
if you have an idea or a policy or a decision and you're taking it through the motions and you feel good about it all the time and are never overcome even briefly by a major wave of doubt or concern, I think it's possible that you've compartmentalized things or suffer from any of the other earlier scenarios. Good ideas are hard, not simple, not easy. If you feel bad every day or the majority of the time, I don't think that's a good thing either at all. But I think if you're feeling good all the time, that's a warning sign that something might be missing. Anyone who has wrestled with any sort of decision that impacts other people and is really present for the details and consequences of that decision, whether it be about a family member's medical care or a new project at work or a new policy in a community, there should be moments of doubt where you sort of get put into being your own biggest critic and devil's advocate. Some of that might be triggered by internal self-doubt or some by the shouts of external stakeholders. Now, I know I've struggled with this at various points in my own life, though actually I think this is one of the areas where that hyper self-conscious self-doubt, as challenging as it can be to balance in a healthy way, it actually does have an upside in that you've probably, in those moments, very authentically tore your idea apart and taken the total opposite position, maybe even become briefly convinced by the opposite take. You've probably wrestled with the consequences or risks and you've engaged with doubt. I think that existing at some points along the chain of vetting or implementing ideas is healthy and is necessary. And if it hasn't happened, if you've been sailing only on positive vibes for months or years on some big change and people are shouting at you to stop, I think at that point it's worth making sure you aren't telling yourself the story that you want to hear and that you can give yourself space to engage with any negative or critical aspects of whatever the thing is and try to approach it from a more balanced perspective. Again, if you're hyper self-critical, you may already be in a strong position about this. And this kind of issue happening to you might be less of a risk. But it's worth considering how you structure that self-criticism. Right, You don't want it to become a persistent, chronic, sort of anxious, negative dynamic, but you want to leverage it into something that you can actually gain strength and confidence from through uh, using it to vet your ideas um, more thoroughly. So it's time to think about building or maintaining good feedback loops. And I would consider a good feedback loop uh, one that, generally speaking, is critical and creative and constructive and authentic. Through this process, we aim to vet our ideas and produce better ideas that can lead to better decisions and better outcomes around us. Here are five things that I think are important to consider. Not an exact science or finished list, but just an idea of kind of where my head is at. Number one, understanding how your brain works. Boy, this is a big topic, and I've talked about it a bit before on this podcast because you can really go down some rabbit holes here with evolutionary biology and psychology or about consciousness and free will and so many other topics about addressing our own thought patterns about our lives. But it's also about understanding that to be really self-reflective, we need space away from minute-by-minute distractions of the world that we live in. We need to feel our feelings and allow thoughts to circulate that are easily displaced by the constant distractions that tend to dominate our daily lives. 
Now, I was working through some things while I was traveling last year, and although there were a number of good four or five day stretches with no outside contact or technology, something that I've prioritized in my life uh, as a setting for many years now, I took it a step further on my therapist's advice to spend a day doing nothing. Basically, a one-man silent meditation retreat without the meditation, but also without music or reading or writing or taking pictures or hiking or projects or really anything. I was in Dixie National Forest in Utah at the time and spent a good 20 hours, basically just a whole waking day, starting around 6 a.m. doing nothing other than just sitting and walking around a little bit. It was very difficult, especially for those of you who know uh, my brain, but it was incredibly insightful. And I think that we can all benefit from taking more time to think deeper. And that kind of space is probably required to really be honestly self-reflective about our own values, beliefs, fears, hopes, goals, and behaviors. Every semester, I talk about this right up front and provide students with some basic ways to give themselves a less distracted space to think and do our work. And every semester, I get positive feedback from multiple people who found doing some of those things valuable. If you give yourself the space to authentically interact with yourself, you'll be surprised what kinds of insights doing so can turn up. That idea you had in the shower, well, that wasn't an accident. It's a form... And it's from a well-studied and real phenomena that you can more intentionally build into your life without that much effort. Number two, diversity. Diversity is the only way our planet has survived. Ecosystems, even small patches of dirt, contain more species of living things than you would imagine. With entire forests containing thousands upon thousands of different species of highly specialized living things working together and against each other to create the productive ecosystem that we see. Monoculture fields are vulnerable to pests, Poorly replanted forests die in just a few years if species aren't mixed in properly. And I'm not sure if there is any living thing that's been identified on the planet that doesn't rely on other living things as part of its life cycle. Healthy, diverse ecosystems are resilient and powerful forces that can adapt and grow in magnificent ways. And I would argue that this is an area where we can learn a lot from nature. Although much of human history and still much of the world isn't super diverse, one of the great things about this country is that we are. But our models for creating teams isn't really built on leveraging this value. It's more so built on the primate in-and-out group scarcity-driven framework. Our elections, for example, and our political system don't aim to place different people with differing perspectives in the same decision-making environment. Instead, those differences are really more so meant to be worked out during the election. And then one leader gets selected, who then usually and increasingly aligns the entire institution to serve within their mindset. Instead of seeing governments produce decent quality work that many people can live with or maybe even agree with, we see governments more and more making more extreme decisions that then get repealed and reversed when the other group comes in next, and we swing on a pendulum back and forth making no real progress, but sure spending a lot in the process. But if those sides had to be forced to actually work out solutions with each other, rather than win a contest to the get carte blanche over decision making, I think things would look very different around us. 
And in fact, that model does exist in the animal kingdom. There's a wide variety of decision-making and leadership systems, and we just happen to do the one that tends to create what we can call the winner-takes-all leadership style that animals like chimpanzees and other primates tend to use. So I think part of the lesson and insight there is that when we think about designing teams and building organizations, that we should be leveraging diversity and we should be building resilient organizations that institutionalize having multiple differing perspectives that don't get silenced if they're in the minority, but which participate in a conversation that builds sort of more consensus-based solutions that kind of had to take differing views into account rather than just ignore them. Number three, cognitive biases and back to our brains again. As teased out earlier, our brains don't really work in the way that we most likely tend to think. And rather than diving really far into that rabbit hole again, I'll just say another part of it that I think everyone should be at least vaguely aware of, if not study more closely. And this is the kinds of biases, especially cognitive biases, that come loaded with the firmware for all members of our species and ultimately all animals and living things. For us, these include things like false positive pattern recognition biases. And that's a bias that is held over from a long time ago. If you think about the value of under-recognizing patterns, so not seeing patterns when there are them, or seeing patterns when there aren't any, the latter is safer for our ancestors because that means that if you're sleeping and you see uh, shadows of a predator across the savanna grasslands, you're more likely to go check it out or get prepared or have a warning. And that's not a big deal if there was nothing there. What would be much worse would be not thinking something is there when something is there. So we are built and it is well studied that we over perceive patterns when they don't exist. And that's a bias that is part of the way that our brains work. There's confirmation biases, narrative biases, anchoring biases. There's Biases where we imply causality when merely there's correlation, and the list goes on. I mean, there are entire fields of study about these biases, and they are everywhere, influencing virtually every decision that we make. Having an awareness that these exist, and maybe even understanding some of them, can be a powerful tool in improving the way we make decisions. So, for example, would you drive 30 minutes each way? Or travel 30 minutes each way to save 75% on a, on a new pair of $200 headphones. So it's going to be $50 instead of $200. What about 30 minutes each way to drive to get a coupon that would reduce the cost of a new house from $300,000 to $299,950? Most would in the first instance, but not the second. Because we tend to think about various money-related things as a percent, even though percent of savings, like in this example, literally doesn't matter. $50 savings is $50. And that $50 is worth the same in allowing you to then procure other goods or services. Advertisers and marketers know these sorts of things, and a lot of us are manipulated and fooled to pay more for things or make different decisions than the ones that might be optimal for us because of these biases. They play a huge role if and how we process new information and form ideas. And being aware of them can help you be more rational with how we make decisions. Number four, being proactive and representative. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of governments make 
in thinking about public feedback, for example, is that they wait for the feedback to come to them. But we know that there is a very negative and specific and non-representative response bias in people who do those sorts of things. In most communities, they tend to be older, they tend to be whiter, they tend to be retired, and there's a number of other demographics that will vary to some degree in community to community, but pretty much everywhere you will find the type of people who typically respond negatively to an issue in a reactive way are not representative of the broader community. And so using that, if you want to use public feedback to make decisions, you have to be proactive. You can't wait for something to go wrong and people to hear about it. You have to go seek input from people and actually gather it. Identify random groups of people or identify representatives from specific stakeholder groups whose feedback you want to understand and go out there and actually gather that feedback and bring it in. That is much more valuable. That's going to offer a much more valuable insight into decision making than just basing it on the sort of arbitrary and biased conditions of who tends to respond negatively to something, um, which has a whole host of dependencies, such as hearing about the information in the first place, knowing how to get involved and, and make an issue known and feeling comfortable about doing that, having the availability to come often to in-person meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So feedback is really important to get, but we want to make sure that we're going out to get it. Or if we're in a company or organization, that you're soliciting that feedback directly from people. And like we're talking about these biases before, you know, data has shown that, for example, when you ask people for feedback versus advice, feedback will get you more vague and more positive responses, where advice tends to get you more specific and more critical responses. There's a lot of things that can impact the kind of feedback that we get, and we want to make sure that we are being mindful of as many of those things as possible and going out and trying to get it. Number five, creating trust. Getting critical feedback is important, but on a broad level, it requires having trust with people around you, something that generally seems to be in short supply in our sort of civic environments these days. But this is key to having the space to really explore and vet ideas. I feel very lucky to have a network of people who I trust in my personal life and my professional life such that we can be open about expressing ideas, debating with each other, and overall improving the way that we think over time. If you've played a sport and never played against or practiced against anyone better than you, or trained in a way that pushed you past your limits, I think you'd have a hard time improving. Ideas should be treated no differently. Some years ago, I was doing some research for a leadership development program I was hired to redesign, and in my surveys of various people, mostly young people, in various leadership positions, I found that most of them tended not to use formal vetting mechanisms like committees in a legislative body to vet ideas, but rather what they more so used was their family and friends. Those people did not necessarily have specific expertise or knowledge about the topic areas, but rather those were people who could be trusted. I don't think we need data to show that trust is 
almost entirely absent from a civic discourse at almost any level anywhere these days. People are quick to judge others and assume the worst. And that is no place to experiment and test out new ideas or to challenge ourselves or others. Because people are so defensive and quick to retreat to pre-existing conditions, it's hard to make any progress or advance or develop ideas. So one of the priorities, I think, in a management environment or in a decision-making space in a community is finding ways to build trust. Activities that are specifically geared at getting more people to be aware, understand, and access different government services or information. There's ways to bring people into the fold that can be uh, diverse and can be proactive um, and by doing that and making good, transparent decisions, uh, admitting mistakes and doing things along those lines, I think that even if the process is a little bit messy, if it builds trust in the environment that can then be the foundation for harder conversations in the future, it's really worth it. And that is the case with the people that are close to us. And I think that's the case with our close uh, bosses, direct reports, and coworkers as well. Having trust in those environments is really important and should be a priority of any leader in any sort of space. Um, and it's an important aspect to designing critical feedback systems that we ourselves can participate in, is making sure that if you're engaging someone in that process and you're soliciting their feedback about your ideas, that you have been clear with them that they are able and allowed to express disagreement and that that's not going to negatively impact your relationship. Think about how many families and friends over the last years, especially the last couple of years, have struggled with this very topic. Think about how much better it would be to be able to be in an environment where you can disagree with someone but still trust that person. It's a much better environment for self-reflective and critical sharing of ideas and responding to others. So I think the rigor of ideas that we advance through our personal lives, our family, uh, work lives, and political lives, all of those places deserve ideas that have really been debated and tested and run through a thorough process that we can be sure or at least hope or expect is improving the ideas that we put out in the world. Not everybody has access to these spaces and we see the consequences of that. So what I've covered in this episode, I think can be applied in a few layers. And I've mentioned the following framework before, and that's thinking about how you can apply things to your personal life, your work life and your political life. So in that order, in your personal life, I think these, we covered in this episode, a few different questions and concepts that could be incorporated into how you approach ideas or solicit feedback from those around you. Or perhaps these might be different concepts that you can consider being intentional about with others who are in your trusted, close, personal circles. Beyond that, there are probably many different avenues for each of us to always be improving how we vet ideas wherever we work with the people that we report to or those who may report to us or in any other configuration with colleagues or classmates or other peers. Are the feedback loops in those environments, A, do they exist? And B, are they as thorough and intentional as they could be? And if not, how could they be improved? 
And lastly, in our political lives, and I think this is ultra important because I know for me, a strong preference that often leaves me unsatisfied is wanting to vote for and support political and other leaders who don't tell me what I want to hear or express a similar opinion or belief that I have, but rather who show that they can wade through complexity and are intentional and careful with how they seek feedback and design their decision-making systems. So basically, people who aren't too insecure to bring in those who disagree with them right onto their teams, and ideally who are insightful enough to see the wisdom of truly diverse teams. Now, did any of these ideas strike a chord with you? Have you tried them before? Or do you have other ways that you've approached how to vet ideas and how to navigate the dynamics that we talked about today? please email me and let me know. I'll definitely be sharing some more thoughts on these topics, especially as it applies on a practical basis to how leaders in organizations seek input from their broader stakeholders or community. So I thank you again uh, for joining. I hope this has been helpful. And let me know what you think about how these ideas have or haven't worked for you or how you approach, how you vet what you put out in the world. If you want to find show notes, sources, and more information, you can do so in the YouTube description or online on my website at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with any questions or feedback at alex at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com or on social media. And if you liked what you heard, please consider leaving a positive review, subscribing, liking, or sharing this episode with a friend. Thanks again for listening.